This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Welcome, everyone. I'm Randy Moore, along with Andy Payton, and we are the pastors of this Pastors Podcast, and um, it's good to have you with us. It's Tuesday, the Tuesday before Christmas, and so... Pastor Andy, you and I probably both, and everybody that's listening, if you're sitting down right now, it's the first time you've sat down in a while, getting ready for Christmas. <laughs> I'm not going to be sitting down for a while, Randy. <laughs> well, maybe 30 or 40 minutes. Well, the world, uh, it's true, <laughs> the, the podcast, that's yeah. funny. Um, no, the world is, um, how do you say it, buzzing with anticipation. Ad- Advent, the season of Advent in the Christian church is going to come to its culmination in a few days, and and our lives are spending with all kinds of activities. So, yeah. yeah. The question that comes up uh, repeatedly during this time is, are you ready for Christmas? It's kind of a loaded question. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> we're never ready for Christmas, I don't think, fully. I, right. As a pastor, I, some, of the, one of the, some of the hardest sermons I've preached and homilies I've preached are like Christmas and Easter mm-hmm. because everyone's so familiar with the story. Everyone's right. so familiar with what they think it should mean and you know not that what they think it they sh- not what they think it means is wrong necessarily but how do you take something like that and connect with people and so i find right. i always get very anxious about this moment coming up for christmas eve and then you couple that with that we have families and we have all these other things we don't want to neglect and there is a moment though on christmas eve um, which I love and I've always loved. Of course, the message is a beautiful message, mm-hmm. right? Sure. The, yeah, yeah. the message of the incarnation and all of that is just wonderful. But to go into the sanctuary at night yes. and it's dark yes. and it's quiet and the candlelight's going and you realize that, yes, all of the activity is not over yet, but it sure feels like you can relax into it a little bit at that point. It has this centering type of quality, like yeah. the buzz dissipates just for a few moments. I, when we light the candles and sing Silent Night at the end, um, at the end of the at the end of the carol, at the end of the hymn, I always just pause for like 10, 12, 15 seconds and just right. breathe it in, you know? And yeah. and there is this sacredness, very much so yeah. to it. We always try to, you know, remind each other to center ourselves every Sunday morning, um, but it's especially necessary, but in some ways easier to do on Christmas Eve because of the environment, because it's a little bit different than Sunday morning. It is dark, mm-hmm. you know, and there are more candles and there is just that feeling. So I look forward to it. I, I really, really do. And in fact, when the last time somebody asked me, are you ready for Christmas? It was just yesterday. And I was able to say, you know what? I took my last box uh, for shipping today, if that's what it means <laughs> to be ready for, for Christmas. <laughs> the gifts are shipped. <laughs> right. Done. Yes. Christmas is ready. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. So it is Tuesday before Christmas. And so uh, several things are colliding here, you know, for us. There is uh, Sunday is actually the fourth Sunday in Advent. Mm-hmm. It's it's Christmas Eve, and you are in the midst, uh, nearing the conclusion of this sermon series that you've been in on the 25 Articles of Religion for the Methodists. And so we're going to talk about that one because that was the topic of your sermon last week. And then this week, of course, it won't be. And so we'll look forward to those services that we're going to have on, on Sunday. And we always do this soul check-in. 
how is it with your soul or what is it that makes your soul prosper? I thought I would just dig in just a little bit because uh, some of the background, because I think it's interesting. And I, if I knew this verse, I had forgotten about it and forgotten about its connection to what we're talking about when we do this soul check-in. But from uh, the third letter of John and the first couple of verses, uh, they read, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Yeah, may you be healthy, body, mind, spirit. May you prosper in all that you are. Uh, I love that. It's a, holis uh, it's a holistic um, view of what salvation is about. Yeah. And that's such a helpful pivot when it comes to our journey, when we realize that what is salvation? Well, it's this holistic type of experience where mind, body, spirit, they're all kind of tuned in, moving in the right direction, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. and so often I think we kind of like categorize like our spiritual life over here and then our work life's over there and our family life's over here. No, no, it's this holistic type of thing. And right. and God wants the whole you to be well, actually. Uh -huh. Well-being is our jam, yeah. really, when we're talking about uh, what does it mean to tune in and talk talk about how is it with our souls? We're talking about the whole us. Yes, yeah. And we mentioned before, but uh, we, we do this because it's part of the examination of pastors, which goes all the way back to John Wesley. And that would be one of the questions. You know, today we say, how is it with your soul? Mm -hmm. But uh, as we just read, it's not so much how is it with your soul? What is it that makes your soul prosper? Is your soul prospering? Is it grow? Is it growing? Are you growing closer to Christ's likeness mm -hmm. uh, uh, day by day? And it's an important question to ask because as pastors, for the very reasons we've been talking about with the Christmas crush going on, we need to we need to check in on our souls all the time. If not, our souls won't be prospering. In fact, they'll be going in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the soul part of us. I mean, one way to explain, I think, for me that helps is the soul part of us is that that internal part of ourselves that asks the question, am I really aiming for the highest good? Am I really aiming for the highest good? And um, sometimes we don't. I mean, that's just part of the human condition. Sometimes we, we don't aim for the highest good. We settle for things that are less than that. And, and then what happens is we we start to live our lives on these paths and we feel less than fulfilled. And so when we're saying, Hey, is your soul prosperous? Is it, is it, are you aiming for the highest good? It, it really is inviting the question. Are you leading your life or living your life in such a way that you're aiming for the highest happiness that you can go for? And so it's a really helpful thing to think about. Mm -hmm. um, Cause we do get entangled as I just mentioned. Right. And we don't bring it up uh, if we thought it was just about us. I think anybody that calls himself a Christian uh, would benefit by some self-reflection and some soul searching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no retirement in Christianity. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I know there's this part of us that wants to get to this place where we can kind of just sit down like, well, I've arrived and yeah. I've put in my time. I'll just sit back and let it happen. And no, it, it's not like that at all, especially if you get to know Wesley mm -hmm. at all. He, he did not stop. 
he continued to live out his walk with Christ in very intentional and concrete ways. And, you know, as you get into the class meeting types of questions that they would ask one another, they were geared towards making sure people were moving forward and moving on and growing in their walk um, with 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 God. And, and so it's something we always need to keep before us. Yeah, I think Wesley's brilliance, um, you know, he was he wasn't like a groundbreaking theologian. I mean, a lot of the ideas that he promoted were ideas that were already out there, but I think his brilliance was in this kind of thing. It, he was a brilliant organizer and he organized these societies. And though even those came before him, but he picked up on this idea of forming these societies within the Church of England. And, and when they got to a certain size, they broke them down into classes. They'd be about 12 people. And then that's where some of this that we're talking about uh, comes from. I just... Uh, printed a couple of paragraphs about Wesley describing the duty of a class leader. So a class leader would be appointed and he'd be over about, about 12 people. And uh, so the first item of responsibility would be to see each person in his class once a week at least in order to receive what they're willing to give toward the relief of the poor to inquire how their souls prosper. There it is right there. Mm -hmm. To advise, reprove, comfort, or exhort as occasion may require. I find it interesting that the first question was not about how's your individualized spiritual self doing. It's more like, are, how are you going to help the poor? Yeah. And that was the first lead-in question. And so one of the big things I, I would emphasize about Wesley is there's this concreteness to his understanding of Christianity. It's not this otherworldly stuff. He cares about the suffering of people. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? I care about the suffering of people. If I don't care about the suffering of people, then my soul is definitely in the wrong place. And, and so the first part of that question goes in that direction. And you see these themes if you really if you really look closely at the story of Christmas, since we're upon Christmas is upon us, you see this. Uh, these themes were like the poor are lifted up, and Jesus, of course, is born into a very impoverished situation. Um, Mary's Magnificat, yes. revolutionary statement. Yeah. yeah. I, side note here, I learned something interesting about Christmas and how it was celebrated through the centuries as I was working on my homily for Christmas Eve. Um, this gift-giving business, um, of course, they'll a lot of times people will connect that to the, the wise men, yeah. the, the magi, and giving gifts to Jesus. And certainly there's a component of that. But what I find interesting is that there was this one season in the church where the way that the people celebrated Christmas was the poor would go to the rich folks and the rich folks were, ha what they were supposed to do is share their best stuff with the poor. Uh -huh. And so it was like, it's the Magnificat. It, yeah. If they're living into it, like right. blessing the poor, blessing the poor. And, and to miss that component of Christ Christmas and to miss that compo component of Christianity is just to, to miss the whole thing, really. Um, mm -hmm. Jesus is the poorest of the poor. He is homeless, basically. Right. I mean, in the Gospels, it even talks about Jesus says, hey, I have nowhere to lay my head. That's Jesus. Yeah. That's yeah, when he laid his head down, it was usually somebody else's house or a yeah. rock or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Mary yeah. and Martha and Lazarus. He's yeah. right. He, yeah. he was some couch surfing there, big time. Right, but, right, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But I just find it fascinating. Wesley, in this question, yeah. leads with that theme. I mean, you know, maybe that's something you and I should probably ask ourselves. 
How are we engaging the poor? Right. Maybe that's the question before even the soul stuff. How are we in the concreteness of it? Well, the the accountability is such a thing, such a huge, huge thing. And we do that, I believe. I I believe, uh, you know, I think about Sunday school as something that came from a different tradition because I grew up in a different tradition going to to Sunday school. But Sunday school is a a Wesley thing, I think. That's a small group. And then small grouping itself, which is so popular now because when churches get of a certain size, then it's hard to hold each other accountable in a congregation of hundreds. But if you break it down to 12, you know, and you meet and you're serious about it, then some of these things can happen where these tough questions are asked and, and we hold each other accountable and we need it. Yeah, Sunday school uh, in the Methodist tradition over time replaced these small group meetings. And one of the debates is, was that really healthy or not? Mm-hmm. Because um, what happens in Sunday school while very important, I'll emphasize that Christian. We both teach a Sunday school class. We both. Te- I mean, we both teach Sunday school. Yeah, but it's if it's only a conveying of information. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see that as being altogether the main point and thrust of what we're supposed to be doing as disciples. If it's just information, and so the power of these groups was that this first this first question, like you kind of hear it. It wasn't about information as much as like, how are you living this out? Mm-hmm. How are you embodying this and in, incarnating this in your life? Mm-hmm. That was the point. Because um, mm-hmm. if you don't get there, it's like, well, what are we doing? Very good. Okay, she, we should probably get to the uh, to the articles this morning, and we're up to Article Twenty of of the Twenty Five. And um, once again, just a quick little explanation: these Twenty Five Articles. Uh, this is a uh, Methodist doctrinal standard, and um, John Wesley, when uh, Methodism was getting started in the United States, which was simultaneous with the United States getting getting started, uh, John Wesley was a priest in the Church of England, the Anglican Church. He never was and didn't set out to create a new denomination or new church. In fact, he couldn't. Um, the Church of England was the state religion, so there wouldn't be any creating any kind of a new uh, church or, or denomination in England. But because of the religious freedoms in the United States, it became a church um, uh, once it got to the United States. And so Wesley took these 39 articles of the uh, Church of England, and those ha- went through various iterations of, of numbers of, of, uh, of articles, but they ended up on 39 and so Wesley took 25 of those and sent them over uh, for the church uh, in America. And these, um, in some ways, well, not in some ways, um, because they came out of the Church of England, which was two centuries uh, before the 25 Articles, so right in the midst of the Protestant Reformation. So they're, it's really a Reformation document, uh, anti-Catholic in, in, in many ways, and then also anti Calvinist um, as well. And so Wesley did deal with that to a degree, but as we've seen throughout these weeks, those anti-Catholic statements seep through. And you have chosen, not as a sneaky way at all, but you've chosen not to, for what you're doing on Sunday morning, include those anti-Catholic portions, but just stick to those portions that uh, have information, uh, have teachings that are applicable uh, for, for today. And I, for my Sunday school class, I was doing a little bit of, of research on this, and 
uh, actually borrowed the book of Revelation. Now we're getting a little bit deep. So you, as we said before, if you like this kind of thing, you're with us anyway, but borrowed the book of resolutions from 2008. So this is from the General Conference of the United Methodist Church. And so I found that when you read the 25 articles today, for instance, if you go to the website, it'll say, listen, for an, ec for an ecumenical take on these, see the book of resolutions from 2008. And in that book of resolutions, they approved a resolution that said, in effect, yeah, things, <laughs> that was a product of it. Those statements came as a product of their time. We are more ecumenical today. John Wesley himself was more ecumenical. He wrote a sermon called The Catholic Spirit. And it was such an, oh, I don't think he used the word ecumenism, but it, it was. And that was decades before he handed on these 25 articles. So it's just interesting that, you know, the church realizes, listen, this is a doctrinal standard and they are what they are, but please understand that we love our Catholic brothers and sisters more than these articles would indicate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's unfortunate, the language. Mm -hmm. um, but once you put it in context, you kind of understand a little more. I mean, yeah. they were on the front lines of when these articles were being written, they were on the front lines of the Reformation. Right. And there was so much conflict and violence that was happening within nation rising against nation and religious group rising against religious group. And so that stuff is reflected in these paragraphs. And I, I've tried to avoid that, as you said, because, mm -hmm. well, I want people to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, right. Find something timeless in it. And yeah. uh, the the thing that I always have struggled with when it comes to these articles of religion is Wesley clearly edited them, edited the articles for his own time. And then the Methodists came in 20, 30 years later and constitutionally protected them as if they were going to be some sort of absolute unchanging truth. That's just not mm -hmm. a healthy thing to do. When you lock something into stone, you're on the verge of idolatry every single time. Yeah, And that gets us in trouble when it comes to religion because we get to mixing the voice of God with the voice of our own absoluteness, if you will. And we, it's just tricky, very yeah. tricky. Yeah. I mean, they are product of a product of their times and they're in the midst of a battle. And so you end up getting extremes. And even with, even with Calvin, that's the case. Mm -hmm. Calvin himself wasn't as Calvinistic as his followers. People take it and then they become more extreme. Yeah. So often what happens, mm -hmm. um, and, and then in that extremism lose the spirit of what it was. Right. You know, it, uh, sometimes the extremism is not good. It's not healthy. I would argue in the Methodist, um, the Methodist system, the Methodist denomination post Wesley, we got more rigid on some things, but I'm not sure that was always a great thing that we did there. Right. Um, seems like the, the more we tightened our grip on folks, the worse it got in terms of the conflict and things. And, and even more so, the more you tighten your grip, you lose the spirit that you're wanting to convey, at least in my my experience with it all. Well, I love the Via Media, media the, the, the middle way, and the Church of England set that up beautifully for Wesley because, um, you know, after King Henry VIII, then when he was gone, then England struggled with whether they were going to be Catholic or Protestant. 
uh, down through the ages, and then they ended up somewhere in between. And yes. I think we see ourselves as somewhere in between. Yes. I tell the story, my wife, uh, she's a good Methodist now, but she's Catholic, so she's a Catholic Methodist. I'm just joking, I don't think that really exists, but uh, she hasn't really lost her uh, the fact that she's a Catholic at the same time, she worships at a, and is a member of a Methodist church. But when she first started coming, when she first started coming with me to church, she recognized the liturgy. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're Catholic make, light. Yeah, 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 we're Catholic light. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, seriously, we are like, yeah. if you look at our, look at our liturgy, um, it's very close. If you went to a Catholic mass, I, I don't know. I mean, in terms of the real comparison, I don't know, right. but it's very similar. In sure. fact, um, one example would be years ago, I was traveling with a group of pastors. We went to a Catholic mass in South Africa. They were speaking an entirely different language than us, but I, yet I understood right. what was happening because it was so similar to what I've been taught as a United Methodist. And I find that I find that kind of a positive, really, in some sense that, you know, oh, yeah. there's an entry point for us. And that in terms of the Catholicism, that's something they really do well. You know, if you're a Catholic you can't go anywhere in the world hardly mm-hmm. and not find a place to go right. celebrate the mass. And when you get there, it's going to be somewhat familiar, even if it's in a language other than your own, you're still going to get what's happening. So yeah. it's a beautiful thing. Okay. Article 20 of these 25 articles of religion for the Methodists. And the last several have been about the sacraments. In fact, a few weeks ago, there was an article on the sacraments and that too was to delineate the difference between Protestants and Catholics because the Catholics have seven sacraments and Protestants have two. And so then that was followed up by an article on baptism. That was followed up by an article on Holy communion. Uh, that was followed up by another you know, point of contention. And now we arrive at Article 20, which again is about uh, Holy Communion, uh, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. It's called of the one oblation of Christ. Oblation means offering. Of the one offering of Christ finished upon the cross. And the description reads like this, the offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. We stopped there Sunday morning with the reading, but it goes on to say, wherefore the sacrifice of masses, in which it is commonly said that the priest doth offer Christ for the quick and the dead, to have remission of pain or guilt is a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit. And um, what's going on here is that the article states that Christ's offering that one time was enough and Christ does not have to be offered. Uh, they call it a, a bloody sacrifice week after week after week. I think that that was the issue there. So once again, we could spend, you know, we could spend the rest of the day debating that. And I think the wonderful thing that you've done with these is to say, well, how about we not, you know, how about we not debate it for the rest of the day? How about we, how about we find what's at the heart of this? Mm -hmm. And your, your sermon on this article was about the cross. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, And the different ways the cross has been understood and, just broadly speaking, of course, the cross is a symbol of strength and hope, and um, it's, a, it's a symbol of God's love that transcends those things that often hold us captive, and and that's what I tried to focus on. And uh, obviously, this article 
is getting very specific in what it's dealing with. But I mean, more broadly, though, I think the cross is very important to us as Christians. And one of the things that people, I think, would be surprised to know that have not had a chance to study deeply the tradition and even the New Testament for that matter, there's really not one way of looking at the cross. There's multiple ways of looking at the cross. They all have their own truth to convey. And so in my sermon, it was like a broad overview of that. Um, the most common way that people understand the cross, of course, is that it is a manifestation of God's love for us. I quoted John 3.16 in my sermon, even alluded to something Paul said in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to prove God's love for us. And so at a kind of a ground level, basic um, understanding of the cross, it's like, how much does God love us? Well, God loves us enough that God lays God's life down for us. That, that's the basic meaning. And I think broadly, most anyone will agree with that. Now, as we move on is where we start to get into some more of the diversity. Uh, another way the cross has been interpreted biblically is Jesus' death is a sacrifice for our sin. And that's echoed in article of religion in some sense. Um, although I think what the article of religion does is different than what the New Testament actually does when it talks about sacrifice for sin, if we're playing the game of historical context. <laughs> and I think historical context becomes very, very important um, anytime we talk religion. But uh, sacrifice for sin, in my sermon I mentioned, finds its home in the Jewish theology of the time of Jesus in the first century context. And the Jewish theology of the time said there are only certain impurities and sins that could be dealt with by sacrificing at the temple in Jerusalem. So just stop and think about that for a moment. If that's true, then we've tied God up, in a sense, to one building at one specific place, one specific time. There's a monopoly on God here, institutionally speaking. Along comes Jesus, and I would say John the Baptist, early Christianity. And they say basically, no, um, forgiveness of sin is something broader than that. It's, it's this offering of God's grace and mercy that's extended beyond any institution. And so when they say Jesus is a sacrifice for our sin, they're saying, um, basically, um, we all have access to God. They're subverting that institutional monopoly. Side note again, ironically, the church has taken this idea of sacrifice of sin, forgiveness of sin, this universal availability of God's presence to all people. And over time, as Christianity evolved, the church again became its own institutional monopoly for God again. And, right. and uh, for, for a very long time, it was tied to the sacraments of the church. And uh, this article of religion that you just read is, is basically trying to move beyond that. Right. And they're saying that um, for a long time, though, that a person had to be baptized and have communion to find Christ or receive the grace of Christ. When the Reformation happened, it pivoted. And rather than about the sacraments, it became more about, a, I would argue, a certain theology. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way of thinking about Christ now. If you stop and really think about that, that's both, of, in a sense, a works-based righteousness. If I have to do something, mm -hmm. if I have to believe something, understand something, then that's something I have to kind of like work up myself up to. It's a performance. Yeah. And and so it's unfortunate. So uh really in terms of what that can do in our own relationship with God, because in the end, what happens is we turn our relationship with God into another form of performance. But that's not how God is. In the cross, God's love is given. Uh, in Jesus' death, we find that 
we're saying that there's a universal availability of God's presence that we see in this moment, but it's true for everyone everywhere. All right. Those are the kind of the two <laughs> common ways of thinking about Jesus' death. Uh, a couple other ones are a little less known. Um, sometimes Jesus' death is, in the New Testament at least, talked about in terms of uh, in dying on the cross the way he did, he disarmed the principalities and powers of that time. The principalities are the um, hierarchy that killed him, the institutional monopoly that killed him. There's a religious institutional monopoly that was tied to the temple I just talked about, but there was also the political one, which was tied to the Roman occupiers. Uh, these were the principalities that tried to silence Jesus and kill Jesus. Um, and uh, so those are the principalities. What are the powers? The powers are the, like the, I would, I would argue, they're like the cultural norms that these institutions were embodying. So there's this cultural norm that said everything they were doing is okay. Everyone just said, well, this is just business as usual. And you see it all the time in our world today. Like the institutions embody the culture of the people, right? Like they're, they're playing off of each other. They're, they're finding their energy from one another. Um, but Jesus disarms all of that in his death uh, and a writing a letter, a writing that's attributed to Paul in Colossians. It says he like his death on the cross disarmed all of that. Essentially it's Colossians two fifteen, where the verse comes, if you want to look it up. But uh, essentially what happens in that moment though, of Jesus death is he's exposing the moral bankruptcy of the institutions of the time and the culture of the time. They killed him. They silenced him, but God raises him from the dead where mm -hmm. the world says, no, God says yes, and so that's a big deal to stop and think about the, the ramifications of what that should mean for a Christian's life that says, I believe in the power of the cross. What does it say? What does it say to, for us today? I bow my knee to no power other than the love that's manifested in the cross. And that's a scathing challenge to the nationalism that we see in Christianity today, just a scathing one. I'm fearful sometimes in America that we've wrapped the flag around our Christianity, the American flag around our Christianity. And that's just such a misunderstanding of what they were getting at from a historical perspective, mm -hmm. from a historical perspective. And so that's kind of the third and fourth way of understanding Jesus' death. The final way is the cross is used as a metaphor or a symbol for our own personal transformation. Um, it's echoed in the words of Paul again, I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's a pretty straightforward example of it. That comes from Galatians 2.20. But um, basically what the cross is meant to do is, is not just be this symbol of our transaction with God, but it's about our own transformation with God as we center our lives, as we give our lives to this love that's manifested in the cross. It's meant to change us. And so... Um, that's very quick, I know, and it's a lot. I just poured out there, I know. Um, in fact, I've been thinking about we should probably do a Lenten series on the five different ways the cross is understood. But right. um, I, I find that's a helpful way to set us up for Christmas, though, to keep us honest. Yeah. You know, where's this train going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we can come back. This is a beautiful part about the, the podcast. Uh, there is a lot. You know, we dig pretty deep. You can always rewind the tape, so yeah, to yeah, speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, listen to it a, a couple of times because it, it's, all, it's all good stuff. Yeah, I mean, obviously I geek out on it, um, and I don't want to keep folks too long talking about this, but it's such a central symbol to our faith. Everywhere you go, you see the cross. I, I made that point in my sermon, like everywhere you go. And and so 
if you're really going to get what we're trying to get at, you have to kind of stop and reflect and think about uh, what is it actually pointing to. And over the centuries, uh, there's been different ways of talking about it. And um, early on, after I'm going to, when I say early on, I'm saying post when the New Testament was written um, to about the year, I'd say 11 or 1200. So we're talking year 100 to about the year 11, 1200. The cross was primarily interpreted and applied in the realm of mortality. So it's this promise of God's deliverance to our mortality. And and people had a very high mortality rate during that era of human history. Infants died quite often and people didn't live as long. And so that idea of the power of the cross reminding us that God's love transcends death is very helpful. Um, I could get into some of the ways that they actually thought about it, which <laughs> I don't know if that would be as helpful to the modern mind, but uh, there there were there were some theologians that kind of thought of the the incarnation of Jesus into this world and then ultimately his death um, was a way to trick Satan. Augustine, like he compared the cross to like a fish hook. Like God okay. put put Jesus out like the bait right. and Satan took it. Uh-huh. And then God disarmed Satan's grip on death and, and Jesus's death. And that's an interesting way to, to stop it. That that's how they in, that's how they understood it for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Very different right. than the Roman road of salvation that you'll hear in some of the more fundy fundamentalist churches in Christianity today. Um, but the, the big point was mortality. As we move into the Middle Ages, um, Jesus's death and, and what it brought about was tied a lot to the feudalism of the time. And so what I'm talking about there is like there were lords, there were manners, there were kings, there were monarchies. And so what would happen is if you were just a regular person who was living under the lordship of someone and you were not completely faithful to that someone, then you had to like pay a debt mm-hmm. to maintain that person's honor. And so Jesus's death was interpreted in that way and that lens throughout an era of the church where you know, we've offended our heavenly king and a debt must be paid. Of course, we don't have enough to pay for that kind of debt. And so Jesus pays that debt for us, uh-huh. maintaining the honor of God. It, it's like this great exchange, really. Mm-hmm. And I think now we're starting to get the underpinnings of what the cross has been taught as for a lot of people today. Because as we move into the Reformation, we move from maintaining God's honor through a payment to like, Jesus pays a debt. It's like an economic type of straight up economic thing. And I find it fascinating that debt becomes the issue during the era of the Reformation, which now we've come back to the article religion. Exactly. It's in there, like this whole idea of debt payment kind of right. kind of thing. And capitalism was being born during this time, though. It really was. If you mm-hmm. think about the history of capitalism and free market econ- economy and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I just find it fascinating that all of a sudden Jesus' death is interpreted <laughs> in this way. It's like in, right. in, the, in the debt type of way. And so um, as we move into the, just one more quickly, as we move into the 19th, 20th century, um, Jesus was like, a, his death was kind of like a revelation that uh, it's like a flash of light that overcame our ignorance. Um, and so anyway, my point is there's lots of different ways that people have thought about the cross and to just say that there's only one way and it's my way. No, <laughs> it just do your history. It's not true. It's just not true. Um, but broadly speaking, it's always been meant to be a source of power and strength for us. Just put it simply. 
And then making the application for today, you, you know, you said that we we all have our own struggles, and we admit and confess our own pride and, uh, that we're selfish and self-centered, and life never goes as planned. So we get bitter, angry, stuck in pain, play the role of the victim. But but you said there's a way out of that. Mm -hmm. there, there's a way out of that, and that's the invitation of the cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think just to put in some modern terms, the tendency for us as humans is we have our own ways of thinking that our lives should go and the world should be. And that never happens. It just, and we all know it, it never happens. No one ever lives up to our expectations. Life never lives up to our expectations. We don't even live on up to our own expectations for ourselves. And so underneath the surface of our lives, what happens is there's a lot of angst and frustration especially if you keep trying to reach that expectation and live up to that standard and you can't quite get there. It's frustrating. Um, and if we're not careful, we'll, we'll start being led by the pain and the death rather than a, the light and life. And what the cross becomes is this invitation to not be led by those things and, and realize, hey, I'm part of a power and a love that transcends the death and invites me to light and life and to go in that, in that direction in that way. And what that ends up becoming in terms of practical terms, though, is an invitation to accept my life as it is rather than the way I want it to be. And when you're able to do that, that make that shift, there's a joy in that. There's a liberation in that. You know, it's not we're not saying that everything that happens is somehow God's will in our life. That's not it. But we can consent to the flow of life and the flow of God's presence because we believe in a life and a presence that transcends death. And, and so we begin to work with our lives as they are. And uh, there's, there's some sense of relief when we are able to finally do that. And I can't say that I found my way there yet. <laughs> but I can say in my best moments, I'm there. Yeah. Right. You appeal to the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So what you're talking about is, is the way of the cross. Last week, we talked about uh, Walter Brueggemann and uh, a book I'm reading on the Psalms that he wrote and uh, his his framework for that book is the, the, looking at Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. That's the way of the cross as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's very helpful. Um, yeah, so to be led by the cross is to say, I'm going to lay down my life because I believe in a God that's laying down God's life for me. And when the two of those meet, you're kind of going with the stream of God's love and God's presence. You're moving with the flow of uh, life itself. Um, I, I can't make that point enough, really, because we have this remarkable ten tenacity to make God be somewhere else. And we're not talking about that. What we're talking about in terms of Christianity is all the world's a manifestation of God's love and presence. Thus, God comes to us disguised as our lives just put it in some really simple terms, like God comes just that way. And, and so we're, we're consenting to the spirit of life. Um, and that's what the, the cross is meant to do is invite us to that. And, and certainly some people are going to say, no, no, you can't say that. Well, read your Bible. I, I it's such a biblical idea. It's so biblical. And, uh, and the other thing I would say is it calls us to be present. You know, where's the spirit of life at? Well, it ain't in the past, and it's, it's not right in the here. future. It's right here, right now. And and we're getting to that concreteness of the faith again. 
Yeah, two illustrations that I thought were really good that brought the home point. One was the uh, cleaning out the cat box story, and the other was uh, the kayak of life story. Uh, those were both really good. They helped, very, very helpful. Yeah, yeah. I, I know we're, I don't want to run out of time. I've been a little chatty today, Randy. It must be wound up about Christmas. But uh, the way I talked about it in my sermon is I know I've prayed. I know I've I've shifted, if you will, when I'm willing to wash the dishes and I'm willing to clean out the cat box and not be mad about it. I'm just saying, okay, this is what life needs for me right now. I'm willing to be interrupted from my own agenda. And uh, that seems so basic, but stop and think about the little games that we play with ourselves and the way we resist our lives and the world around us. We're mad because they did not we're mad because we're being asked to do something that didn't fit with my expectations. Frustrated about that. Okay. Or there's one of two ways. We can continue to be frustrated or we can surrender. And the cross is this invitation to surrender and say, how can I be of service? What does life need in me right now? That's spirituality 101. And I know that's not like rainbows and unicorns and warm and fluffy things. It's very concrete, but that's it in a nutshell. Jesus himself said the greatest of all is the... Servant, servant of all, yeah. Okay. Uh, no kayak of life? Okay, we're going to skip that. You have to look that one up. You have to read the... Uh, I don't know time. Okay. Have time. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about this weekend because, of course, it is Christmas. It's also the fourth Sunday in Advent. I'll be preaching at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning on the fourth Sunday in Advent. Um, then the uh, we'll have services, Christmas Eve services at four and seven. And just very, very briefly, the fourth Sunday of Advent is always about those uh, events immediately preceding the birth of Jesus. And so this would be, it's about Mary, of course, from the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to be talking about, uh, I'm going to be talking about the fiat of Mary. And fiat means let it be. Uh, and Mary, the angel comes to her and she says, essentially, let it be. And she's a representative for all of us. Mm -hmm. Mary, probably no more than 14 years old, a lay person, just a regular little uh, young woman or not even a, I mean, this was a child almost. And this amazing thing comes and she says, let it be. And it is incumbent on all of us uh, to bear Christ into the world in the same way that Mary bore Christ into the world. That's that's Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in a nutshell. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Mary's the one, right? I mean, that's it. Yeah, yeah that's it in a nutshell. And then, of course, on Christmas Eve, we'll, we'll talk about the traditional stuff. Um, we'll light the candle, the Christ candle, finally, and... Proclaim the the light and the reality of God's light and presence in this world in our lives, and and to be challenged in some ways to lean into that. And uh, the lighting of the Christ candle, the reading from the John's Gospel, where the light shines in the darkness, darkness doesn't overcome it, is uh, meant to be a invitation to our own way of life. And so it calls forth our response. And so at Methodist Temple, we read it responsibly because yeah. it calls forth our own response. And so if you're not Going anywhere on Christmas Eve, we encourage you to come and worship with us because it's a beautiful service. Yeah, once again, fourth Sunday in Advent on Christmas Eve morning, 10 a.m., one combined service here. Then we have those Christmas Eve services at 4 and then again at 7. Please come. We would uh, We would love to see you.
And so thank you uh, for listening. We really appreciate it. If you've got a question, you can send us an email. You can find those email addresses at, on the Methodist Temple website. We'd love to answer a lot of your questions and uh, would love to see them. So we hope you have uh, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we will see you next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.